Welcome to the Empowered to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm Jenny Wilson, and I am your host. And today on the show, we talk about one of our uh, new connecting practices. It is the idea of scaffolding. So you may be familiar with this term from other uh, arenas, such as uh, construction or home repair or whatever, but uh, we're going to talk about it in a parenting sense today. And let me just tell you before we jump into it uh, with Tana Ottinger and Becca McKay, uh, this is a very, very, very helpful uh, helpful episode for those of you who might be struggling with behaviors and feeling like you don't know where to go. Um, it- Oftentimes, uh, not to spoil the episode, I will say that we um, begin to do our detective work. We were curious about you know, why certain things may be presenting a certain way. And this uh, episode today is a very, very helpful step from that point to the point of uh, new skill mastery or um, whatever it may be that, that might be um, causing a disruption with you and your child. So this episode today is very, very helpful on that front. Um, again, we are rolling through all of our connecting practices this summer uh, for our new curriculum. Um, we're super, super excited about it and um, the new announcements that are coming very soon about where you can find that. Um, and so, yeah, today, here it is. Without any further ado, Tana Ottinger, Becca McKay, and myself talking about the connecting practice scaffolding. Before we get to that episode on scaffolding, I just want to remind you, we are supported by our great friends at Ryan and Rose. Uh, you might have seen our Instagram live recently with Lindsay from Ryan and Rose uh, talking about different parenting challenges we might face, um, how we cope with the pandemic and the after effects of it within the scope of our, our kids' mental health. And so that was a super um, enjoyable time we had with Lindsay. We love Ryan and Rose um, and they have been huge supporters of us over the years. And so for uh, those of you who had not heard yet, our friends at Ryan and Rose who make um, all kind of family products from uh, pacifiers, passy holders to universal cup holders, bags, and more, they are offering 20% off of anything in your cart if you use the code ETC20. Again, huge discount from our friends at Ryan and Rose who make incredible products, quality products that look good um, for your family. Please check them out at ryanandrose.co. That's R-Y-A-N-A-N-D-R-O-S-E dot C-O. Now, our episode on scaffolding. Well, guys, we're here again today uh, with Tana Ottinger and Becca McKay, and we're going to talk about uh, another one of our um, connecting practices with our new curriculum. And so uh, Becca will walk through it with us, and then Tana's got some examples. And we just we just want to talk with you today about um, a principle that, uh, again, you're going to get tired of hearing us say this, but just like the others, it weaves all throughout everything that we're talking about. Uh, almost all the time. And, and, and you're going to find several of these that sort of pair together almost in, in practical application. But we're going to talk today about scaffolding and how do we scaffold um, for our kids. And so uh, obviously, if you're, if you're hearing this and you don't, you've not heard this term in this way, uh, that scaffolding usually refers to like on the side of a building as they're getting a building stable, you've got, um, you know, kind of braces or platforms that go to certain levels of the building on the outside to be able to lay bricks or to set up electrical or whatever. And so it's the idea of as something is coming together or growing, you know, um, you're creating access to the growing parts that way. And so, uh, Becca, do you want to walk us through kind of the, the way that we're thinking through this in a parenting way? And then we'll, we'll talk through some practical examples. 
Absolutely. First, I will say we are currently doing training for folks, our first round of Cultivate Connection facilitators, and we did our final module, and two people said use scaffolding was their favorite connecting practice. So they're all our favorite, but two people said my favorite was learning scaffolding. It really helped me look at my kid in a different way with different eyes. Um, and so hopefully, as you listen to this podcast, if it's a new term for you, you'll get just excited as excited as we did. So I'm going to read our description here. So using scaffolding is critical in adults assisting children's growth and skill development. When we use scaffolding, we provide the appropriate amount of support, encouragement, or guidance needed for the task at hand. And as we use scaffolding, we enable the child to solve a problem, carry out a task, or achieve a goal that's just beyond their current capabilities in the present moment. As always, we've got our three core components, which is set appropriate expectations, support skill building, and practice outside the moment. This one out of all of our connecting practices is a little bit, um, it comes from education words. So I'm going to give a little bit of like psychology education. What even does, are we talking about? And then we can jump into the nitty gritty. So there was a guy named Vygotsky and he basically said there's three zones of development. There's what you can do. There's what you cannot do. And then there's stuff in the middle and he called it the zone of proximal development. And that's the stuff you can do with help with support, with encouragement. And so there's a lot of times when, you know, what we want our kid to be able to do doesn't necessarily line up with what they can do by themselves. But so many of these skills are right in that zone of proximal development. And if we give just a little support, just a little encouragement, just a little guidance, they can start to build that skill over time. And so that's where the term use scaffolding comes from. Most times whenever, you know, I've heard, when I first heard it, I was working at a school and the presenter was talking about when you teach a kid to ride a bike, you don't just throw them on a two-wheel bike and say, ride down the driveway, kid. I hope you do awesome. You first hold on to the back of the bike. You help them learn how to balance with training wheels. Now they even have like those bikes that don't even have pedals just to get them comfortable feeling that balance, getting comfortable on the little strider bike. So there's a lot of steps between I've never seen a bike and I can go right down the street to my friend's house. And so same with educators. We talk about it a ton with reading. You don't learn how to read until you know your letter sounds. You don't learn how to read until you know how those blend together. But we sometimes fall short and we don't think about it with these like emotional, behavioral, social skills. And that's really where we find a lot of our frustration as adults who are, you know, parenting or caring for kids is like, man, this doesn't seem like a skill that I should have to help them learn, but it is. So it just kind of opens your mindset to a different thing. So that's a long-winded explanation, but it's one of our terms that's so new. And so hopefully that helps you kind of understand what we're talking about today. That's great. And Tana, I think, you know, when we hear this, it probably helps hearing the definition to begin opening up ideas of, oh, okay, I, I sort of understand where this is going here. But um, there's there's so much to unpack in terms of how we can do this with our kids. Um, and, and just some guidelines for as we begin doing this, how do we begin making this a habit for us? And so do you have any advice for us as we're starting to get um, going with this? Like, how do we begin integrating this as a skill into our parenting? Um. Yeah, I think that's that's a good question, JD. Probably if you've been parenting for more than like five minutes, you're already doing it. Mm-hmm. You just didn't know it was called scaffolding. Yeah. 
So I want to like speak some empowerment into the parents and caregivers that are listening. You actually are probably very naturally doing scaffolding in some ways as you support your kids. The reason why we're sort of making it a connecting practice kind of hints back to what Becca said, which is there are some sticky spots, some spots that might be causing some Um, maybe some frustration or some discouragement or some behavioral meltdowns or some lack of progress in some areas where we might not naturally, I wouldn't have until I started learning the idea of scaffolding. I wouldn't have had like this, this internal framework and structure to think about it that way. Um, So it's like thinking about scaffolding as a mindset in your parenting Like, oh, this might be a moment when I could think about scaffolding them in this area. So, for example, um, oh gosh, there's like one million because you really do do it all the day, all the day long. But one that I'm thinking of is, you know, one one of our kiddos, when they came home to us, um, they were, you know, two and they had not been in a setting where they slept alone. Mm -hmm. And so nighttime was a place where this particular kid needed a lot of emotional support. And it's, there's a lot about scaffolding that is respectful of the, of the child's developmental capabilities Mm -hmm. and their like emotional capacity. And so when you're thinking, it's what Becca said, it's that zone of proximal development where it's something they can't do independently yet. It's not that they're not willing to, they just aren't able to for any number of reasons. So I do love to think about scaffolding because I feel like it's really respectful of the child while believing that they have capacity that you can support them to. So we're going to keep helping our children grow. So thinking about the kiddo that was not used to sleeping independently, um, we could have but wouldn't have come home and put the kid in a room by themselves, Mm -hmm. said goodnight, and walked away and expected that child to be able to modulate themselves to sleep in a way that wasn't full of fear, You know, to calm themselves, to feel safe, like to sleep through the night. I mean, there was any number of things that emotionally we needed to scaffold them towards feeling safe, falling asleep in a room alone. So what are the the practical steps? Well, the first one is going to be, if you think about that, lots of layers up the building. They need a lot of support. Yeah. So it could be that the first thing we do when they get home is maybe they have a twin bed and we could lay down with them in their bed until they fall asleep. I mean, look, I'm not going to talk about co-sleeping. That's probably where they would have started in our family. Co-slept first for the first month or two. Then we're going to start trying to move them to their room. Then, Then we lay down with them until they fall asleep. Then we leave, but there's a door open. There's a baby monitor. We're quick to come and help them. We're right there, Johnny, on the spot. That would be like you know, step number two or three. Then the next one might be, I'm not going to lay down with them while they fall asleep, but I'll sit on the end of the bed and scratch their back while they fall asleep. Great. Then a month later, maybe I'm able to sit in a chair beside their bed and just kind of have my hand on the bed. And then maybe in a month, I'm able to sit in a chair on the other side of the room and read a book while they fall asleep. And then maybe I was able to sit outside the room with the door open while they fall asleep. And then maybe... Lord willing, if I'm lucky, I can go to the den and watch a show while they fall asleep. But that is scaffolding over a long period of time. 
And it's very respectful of the child's ability to sort of emotionally, I'm scaffolding them, I'm co-regulating them, and I'm helping them be able to accomplish a task, which is feeling safe, falling asleep in this new environment. Well, I I love that because that, that does like spell out and show all the what ifs. Well, what if that doesn't work? What if this is like, well, we, we take it as slow as we need to in the time, right? Like not every, not every kid starting out needing help sleeping is going to require all of those steps. Sometimes you, you're going to have a three-step way exactly. of doing this. Like, but I think the, the picture is like one of the biggest changes, I think for me as a parent, when I began going through all the ATC content was just, I felt um, I felt empowered to not be self-conscious about how long it might take for this to work. Like um, there is, there is some, and I'm not speaking this into you if you're listening and you don't have this, but I felt tons of uh, pressure as a parent, especially as a parent um, who at the time I worked in ministry. So like I'm this great, you know, professional Christian. I'm supposed to have the best kids, best behaved, everybody well, I can't be taking, you know, six months for our kids to learn how to sleep by themselves if they're older. Like that's, that's outrageous. Like that's, that means I don't have control of my house. Well, then learning about development, learning about the brain, learning about um, trauma and all, how all of that impacts everything. I immediately felt like, oh no, actually like the most, like, uh, the most mature thing I can do as a parent right now is take exactly as much time as that kid needs for me to help them, help walk them into uh, learning how to do this. And so I, I love that. And so Becca, when we talked about the, the core competencies in this, like the, the first one you mentioned was what? Set appropriate expectations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and why don't you, I mean, especially in the classroom setting, you, you've seen this a ton, right? Like how, at, like effective teachers versus teachers that need some extra support on the start. Like, how does this look for you when you're thinking about setting those expectations? Like, do you have any guidelines that you want to give us on, on when we're starting out with this? I think you hit on it. It's that feeling of, oh my goodness, everyone's looking at me as the adult and I've got to have all the control in this space and things have to be exactly how I want. And when you can let go of that fear, you can really look at the kids in your classroom or your home and you can go, okay, but what do they need? Because um, something that we talk about a lot here is you can pretty well scare kids into compliance, into being quiet, but you can't scare kids into skills. Scaring a kid is never going to teach them to read. It might teach them to freeze and be quiet, but it's never going to teach them to take risks, to be like, okay with making mistakes, to like wobble a little bit is kind of what we say. Um, When we were thinking about this, we talked a lot about teaching a baby to walk. And how at first they can just stand up and that's a step. And then you hold their hands and they kind of wobble around. Then they try to hold on to the coffee table and they fall sometimes. And I think when you're thinking about setting appropriate expectations, it's being willing to like open your mind a little bit to, oh, there are, like you said, Tana, a million and one reasons why this skill might be in this kiddo's zone of proximal development where they still need some support. And I think where parents get overwhelmed and where I used to get overwhelmed as an educator is that doesn't mean we have to do everything for the kid. So I think one thing that I really have appreciated as I've learned about scaffolding is just the power of your presence. You just said it, Tana, most of the scaffolding that you were going to provide in this setting was yourself 
being. It wasn't what you were saying. It wasn't what you were doing. It wasn't this crazy, you know, over the top expensive program. It was you. And I think same for teachers, whenever you're in a classroom and you're trying to, you know, you're scaffolding all the time because you're having to do um, educational skills, academic skills. And it can be frustrating when you've got a fifth grade class and there's a kid on a kindergarten reading level. That's extremely frustrating as an educator because it's hard, but you can scaffold them because you've been taught, hey, these are the steps to get from A to Z. And I think that's the thing that we have to be okay with when we're setting expectations is all those in-between steps. Maybe when the room is perfectly quiet, nobody's bothering them and they're not nervous, maybe the kid can read a sentence. But when you add in a noisy environment and all these other peers that are laughing at them, maybe in, maybe the principals in the back observing the class, that skill might still need your presence. They might still need your support in that moment. And so I think whenever you're hearing this as an adult taking care of kids, think about whenever you run into, okay, my kid can't fill in the blank, um, can't be alone with their sibling without fighting, can't read, maybe can't like you said, Tana, go to sleep, um, can't fill in the blank with whatever it is, can't get ready by themselves in the morning. Before you jump to, okay, well, I guess, you know, we do it all with toddlers. Okay, get ready to go. Oh my goodness, this is taking forever. I'm going to pick them up, put their shoes on, put their pants on, and we're going to get out of here because this is taking too long. Setting appropriate expectations is like giving yourself the time to decide, okay, it takes them about three hours to get ready by themselves. So I've got to decide on the front end, is this a morning where I've got three hours? And then I expect I'm going to start going at 7 a.m. We don't have anywhere to be till 11. That's a great opportunity for them to practice that and, and, and do the things by themselves. If we don't have time, the appropriate expectation is, hey, buddy, we've got about five minutes. Come here, I'm going to help you get your coat on. Like, So it's not that putting their coat on is wrong. And it's not that letting them do it themselves is wrong. It's the expectation piece, if that makes sense. You know, Becca, I, I love you gave some examples. And I was thinking about like times in my own parenting where I might have found myself frustrated with a kiddo and how very often what I'm doing is setting, like expecting something of them that's outside of their capacity to do without support. So I'm thinking about things like, Hey guys, I want you to go clean your room. Yeah. You know, and then it just, and and I'm thinking that they should have the skills, like think about all the skills it takes to walk into an overwhelming room Mm -hmm. and figure out how to put it back in order. Yeah. So a lot of times we might think, oh, well, they're undisciplined or we start making all these, like they're they're lazy, they're unwilling, they're belligerent, they're being willful, they're melting down, they're, they're, you know, maybe they're even, maybe there's kids that share a room and they start fighting with each other. Well, maybe they just simply walk in and they don't have all of the capability to know where to start. Mm -hmm. So how, like, let's, maybe let's just use that one. Let's use that one as an example. Like let's you and I spitball. How could we scaffold that situation Mm -hmm. for a child, you know, to help them learn how to clean their room? So pop, pop me out some thoughts about that, Becca. Okay. The first thing I would do before ever, ever coming up with any intervention is I would observe, I would see what's going on. So when I ask you to start cleaning your room, do you start 
and then get frustrated? Or do you not even know where to start? Or is it a sibling dynamic issue? So depending on the starting point, I'm going to always start by trying to do it with them first, because that can help you identify those tricky spots. Hey, let's clean up. And then you want to break down that big task into as many bite-sized tasks as possible. So, hey, buddy, I'm looking at the room and I see a bunch of clothes. Let's start by putting all the clothes where they go. And then we'll move on to the toys and then the books. But instead of go clean your room, even and let's say that you're in an environment where you've got a kiddo with needs across the hall and you can't be in the room. Hey, bud, go clean up the clothes and then come let me know that that part's done. Give them a bite-sized chunk is where I would start. And then some kids do really great with like a visual schedule or like a just an, a typical order that's posted. It's going to depend on your kid if that works for them or not, but definitely breaking it down into those little bite-sized pieces. And then we always talk about using playful engagement, like make it fun. (laughs) Like, hey, how fast can you clean up all the books? Like, hey, if you've got a detail-oriented kid who loves making things pretty, you know what would be so funny today? What if we put all of your books in alphabetical order? Let's do that first. Like just get them excited about the task based on their personality. Now you might have, you guys might be rolling your eyes because you may have a kid that would be like, I'm throwing them on the ground. I'm not going to do that. So you have to know your kid, but what else, Tana, what would you think of? Well, I love that because I feel like what you straight went to was our next core component, which is support skill building. So like, you know, we might want them to be able to run in there and just accomplish this massive task. Yeah. But we broke it down into tangible skills. And over time, let's say that we did that but, you know, let's say room, massive room cleanup was every Saturday mm-hmm. and you supported them that way consistently for, you know, several months. Well, the ne- that at some point you're going to be able to say, go clean your room and the child will have grown into the ability to right. walk in and remember, oh, the first thing we do is close. Yeah. yeah. And then, oh, and then I can do toys. Like they will learn the skills mm-hmm. to manage the larger thing themselves. Yeah. So I, I just think that's that's when most often scaffolding has been helpful for me mm-hmm. is when I throw something out and then when I step back and assess it, it didn't work. Yeah. And why didn't it work? Well, you know, I, I do fundamentally believe children do well when they can. So they must have needed yeah. some additional support. Yeah. So, you know, what what kind of support can we offer? So I love yeah, that. Think about, like, what are you asking them to do before or after? Like, if you're asking them to stop watching cartoons or jumping on the trampoline to go clean their room, that's probably not setting them up for success. Yeah. That's not appropriate. Like, don't make them stop from, like, the most fun thing. We just got home from soccer practice. Now we're going to go clean our room. Like, Help them, give them some steps towards, hey, this is coming up. Give them a heads up. Like, let them know it's going to be coming. So, so you're saying not- we need to use one of our other core components and, and the connecting practices of supporting transitions. Always. <laughs> All Always. I love yep. that. Well, yeah. I'm even thinking about how, you know, we've got a few tweens in our house. And, you know, they've been asking for uh, what feels like their entire lives for a phone. Um, and we've been gladly reminding them that they're not ready for that yet. And so as we, um, as we started getting into the, the age where we're like, oh man, I kind of wish they had a phone. It'd be easier to coordinate the, you know, mm-hmm. letting them know that so-and-so is picking them up today or, hey, I'm running five minutes late. Don't worry, whatever. And so we, we took a step, you know, in that direction and had a conversation and just said, look, we, 
we want to get there with y'all, but there's a lot involved with that that you shouldn't even have to think about yet. And so we're going to take a set that direction and get you a watch that can text and, and you'll be able to like begin learning how to like be responsible with technology that way. And we'll have some clear rules in place and policies in our house and stuff. And and it has been not without its roller coasters because like we're all people, right? And so there's some things that we didn't know to look for. There's some things that they didn't think were going to be as hard as they are. And so, but what's what's now happened is that we're starting to see like, okay, here's the patterns where we've got some work to do. Here's the patterns where we're doing pretty well. And so we're we're now even seeing like, okay, if, we, if we're thinking forward toward when the phone comes to our house, like now we know from the get-go, here's some some guidelines, some guardrails we're going to put in place with the phone because we can already see coming down the road, like what, what we're going to need, what kind of on-ramp we're going to need there. Um, and so I think even just whether it's technology, whether it's sleep, whether it's um, coming to clean up one, it's just such a monster. And especially if you have multiple kids, there are sibling dynamics involved with that. And so um, being creative and, and giving yourself some time to think about that on the front end is, is super helpful. Um, okay. Yeah, go ahead it's okay as an adult to feel frustrated by what we're saying, because what would be nice is if we could know. just say, go come on, sister. Just, just do it. On, so sister. if you're listening to this and you're like, stop saying uh, this to me, like, we I know. you're like, I quit right now. Oh, oh man. I'm listening so to you fools. I don't want to work that hard. Like it would be so, so nice hard. if they could just do it by themselves. Yeah. Yes. But if we can be just honest with ourselves about what they can and can't do yet, and that's an important word yet. It's not yeah. that they'll never, many of these things, there's obviously some circumstances that would make some things not possible. But most of the time with the right support, there's a lot of things that kids can do. It's yeah. just getting yourself to a place where you have the support that you need to show up for them in the way that they need to be showed up for. You know, it's I'm just thinking of those teachers that are like, man, my class doesn't do X, Y, Z until there's a sub. And it's like, hey, guess what? Your presence is co-regulating your students. They feel safe in your classroom. And so you're frustrated because you're like, you guys know how to sit. You guys know how to walk in a line. You guys know how to follow directions. And it's like, they do know how to do that. And your presence is actually helping them to be successful. And so when you're gone, it's okay for them to make some mistakes. Their kids are learning, they're growing. So yeah. I would love to talk about that crying and co-regulating or the co-regulating and being upset because I think this is a big one for parents, especially, I mean, like I, oh goodness, I know that it's it's hard to be needed. Yeah. Um, and it can get incredibly weary and overwhelming and exhausted to be needed emotionally. But truly, if you can start thinking about how your presence is scaffolding mm-hmm. regulation. It is like such a major mindset shift. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if if a kiddo is struggling or feeling an overwhelm of emotion and, you know, they're not able to just sort of manage that on their own and you need to go in and provide some empathy and support and be attuned and help them along. Mm-hmm. And then they're able to sort of... Um, you know, get back into a place of regulation and move on or get back in the activity that I know that we wish we, they wouldn't need us, but they do need us. But what I can promise you as a parent of, you know, older children, they won't always need you that way. Yeah. So 
if I, I think you've hit a hit on it, and I don't even know if I can say it super directly, but what I'm feeling like, Becca, is this idea of like we can't force them into zones of actual development. Right. You grow them and support them into zones of actual development, meaning the more present you are with your presence and support scaffolding, actually the faster they're going to make progress and grow, the more resilient and capable they'll become. If you remove it out of frustration or push them too hard or too far, it's actually not going to achieve the results you want. Mm-hmm. Like showing up with that support is actually how you move towards, you know, independence and capability and self-regulation and all of those really good skills, you know, that we're after. Well, Tony, I wonder if you would even go a step further than that. You, you mentioned, you know, having older kids and um, and them not always needing you in that way, you know, forever. Do you have any examples of ways that you've had to do this with, I think we, it's an easy example for us to think about needing to do this with a toddler who's learning to walk or with kids who are learning to make their bed. Okay. When you've got, you know, later older teens who have been having to make their bed, you know, for 10 plus years, whatever, all those, all those things come into play. So um, any advice as you're starting to do this with teens even? Oh, goodness. I mean, I have so many thoughts that come to mind. One that jumps into my mind quickly is like teaching a a, pre, a teenager to drive. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, or, or after they first get, we have many, you know, drivers in the house now. When they first get their license and they go out in the car by the first time on their own, it's like such a scary feeling. But they didn't get there they had to go with you. They had to have all the, it's just like riding a bike again, all these incremental steps. So think about all the scaffolding that came to getting the permit, then all the scaffolding that came until they were able to drive independently. Then they go take their driver's test and they passed. And you know what? They're still scaffolding that skill. Yeah. Or, or they, maybe if there's, if they're being prudent and wise, they should, they shouldn't immediately go jump on a freeway. Probably when they're all alone, they need to drive around the neighborhood for a while and on the slow streets, then they can go drive on the big city streets. Then they can figure out maybe when it's not rush hour traffic, how to get on and off the freeway alone. Right. You know, and then I'm thinking back to this was the case. One of our one of our kids was not interested in driving um, when when they first could because of their age. It felt overwhelming. There was just a lot going on and they were not interested. So they waited a few years longer than some of their peers, which was fine. That was me setting my expectations. So I'm going to support all these other areas of your life. And when you're ready to drive, we'll get you there. But I'm going to be patient. And I had to, you know, play taxi cab a little longer than I expected. But we made it to driving. But, um, you know, so it was neighborhoods, then it was busy city streets, then it was freeway, then it was a small little road trip alone to see a friend that lived like an hour and a half away, you know, with, you know, Life 360 on, you know, us kind of watching where they were, touching base, you know, helping to make sure they understood how to get gas completely on their own, like all of those things that involve going on a road trip alone. And then probably three or four months later, they drove to Birmingham to meet friends alone, which was like three hours. And that was got a hotel room and stayed alone. Like, you know, all of this next level of skill. So we had to scaffold and practice outside the moment. How do you check into a hotel when you're by yourself? To, I mean, that was just last 
maybe six, eight months ago, and they just flew on their yeah. own um, this last weekend awesome. to go meet a friend like way up north. So they've now taken an air flight alone. And this was a kid who wasn't ex- at all willing to drive until two or three years later than their peers. Mm-hmm. But they've still continued to grow towards independence. But we've respected their journey and given those extra layers of support and patience to get there. So, I mean, it's kind of never ending. It happens when they're babies and itty bitty. It happens when they're toddlers and they're learning how to share a toy. It happens when they're preschool and they're learning how to read. It happens when they're tweens and they're figuring out how to use a cell phone and learning the responsibility of that and maybe some of the the consequences of not being prudent and wise with that. Then it's this teenager thing. And then it's this young adult thing. And we do it too. Don't we guys? Like we scaffold ourselves. Mm -hmm. So it's like this, it's, it's a very human way of growth. Mm -hmm. It's a human thing. I'm, I'm, even as I'm thinking about like the ways, like the, um, the like adult ways that we have to grow and learn, all, oftentimes those are learning through conflict or learning through um, emotional, uh, you know, mountains you got to climb that you haven't, that you haven't had to climb before. Um, so why don't we kind of, I'm wondering if that connects directly to our last um, piece we talked about, which is practicing outside the moment. Because, you know, one of the things that, again, we talked about having tweens in our house, you've got, you know, young adult kids and, and younger kids. I'm wondering if we, we need to like spell out that practicing outside the moment piece because of the emotional toll this can take. And, and let's just even leave kids out of it from the beginning. Sometimes the emotional toll it takes on you in a moment. You're not ready to be able to handle a skill that needs to be taught when it, when it comes to conflict negotiation or... Um, or, uh, you know, emotional regulation, whatever. So why don't we walk through that? So that, will you unpack for us, Tana, the idea of practicing outside the moment, why it's important? I, yeah, practicing outside the moment. I mean, honestly, it, in every way, it sets you all up for success. Mm. Um, there's so many situations from, again, all the way down from itty bitties to teens to tweens to young adults to practice outside the moment. Um, I was, I have another kiddo that is um, currently sort of in a little, you know, new relationship. And so even thinking about like talking to them about well, what might happen if, and how are you going to handle this situation when it arises? And what, you know, what are your expectations about the, how this might go? And I mean, even coaching kids through peer interactions, or if they're struggling with a kid at school, you know, that, that is scaffolding them right. outside the moment to have the words and the skills and the negotiation and to not be caught off guard. And when something happens to be like, oh, I, this, my mom said this might happen. And now I feel somewhat capable to handle it. So that's like emotionally scaffolding your children towards conflict resolution with peers. And then I think even about handling internal family dynamics. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can have family meetings where you're talking about things outside the moment. I mean, for older kids, there's lots of ways you can practice conflict resolution with young kids outside the moment. I mean, yeah. you can role play, you can puppet play, you can play with their dolls. I mean, all kinds of things. I was 
literally took a 15 minute play break with one of our younger kids before this podcast. And we were playing dolls and one of the dolls like said something not so nice to the other one. I was not the one that said the unnice thing, the, the child that was playing with the other doll did, you know? And I was like, Oh, that hurt my feelings. Can we try that again? You know? And she kind of giggled and we tried again. And it was this natural moment to like use an opportunity to talk about, you know, maybe being somewhat appropriate in the way that we we play around with dolls even. So, I mean, there's so many ways. I'm sure, Becca, you probably have one million that's coming to mind as well when you think about practicing outside the moment. Oh, I just think it's everything. I think when you can, yeah, you can identify the skills and then think yeah. of creative ways. With kids, a lot of times it's like you said, games and yeah. role plays and, oh, your teacher said that and it made you feel really embarrassed. Well, I'm going to pretend to be your teacher and what could you have said? And maybe you couldn't have said anything. Maybe you just need to come home and tell mom and dad. Like there's so many of those. And then as they get older, the practice outside the moment really does become more conversation. Yeah. It becomes, let's talk about this. Maybe yeah. it becomes some role plays with friend scenarios. Yeah. Um, but when you can practice outside the moment, it just really... Uh, man, it just really sets them up to not be surprised. Yeah. And it sets you up with a different lens. Cause it's like, you know, you're going to go to school and you're going to fight with kids. And I know that, but if that's like a problem and you're having a challenge with that, let's role play together and practice. Not so that you'll never get into a conflict again, but so that you've got some of the skills needed um, so that you can handle your emotions. Let's be a home that is a safe place for emotions because how much of what we might call misbehavior comes from like disappointment, embarrassment, sadness, anxiety, fear. So much of it is tied to that. So if we are a safe place to process emotions, we're scaffolding and practicing outside the moment every day for those other times whenever you experience it in life. Um, and don't we all like still have meltdowns whenever things don't go our way? No. No, I, I actually have another thought that just came to my mind. This one is, is interesting. So we as parents sometimes have an expectation of how our children should make amends. Mm. or apologize. We've talked about this a couple of times, Becca, where what if I think when a child does wrong, that there is a certain way they should apologize? And what if that kiddo, so um, I think you know where I'm going. Like if if a kid were to um, have a moment of meltdown and throw something across the room, toss a big stack of books and make a big mess. I might think that they should, when that's all said and done and we're making amends and we're in the repair stage, that they should come to me and say some sort of perfectly scripted apology that means they really are sorry. Something like, hey, mom, I'm really sorry that I was angry and frustrated and I threw that books and I shouldn't have, you know, will you forgive me? And I, you know, promise I'll never do that again. Or like whatever we think their apology should be, that means they're sorry. What if that level of acknowledgement and taking responsibility or like whatever I have conceived they should do is outside of their emotional ability because they are like covered in shame over what they did in embarrassment. Maybe they did it in front of their siblings and they're feeling really embarrassed about having lost their cool. Uh So as we scaffold our children towards being able to apologize, quote unquote, in a certain kind of way, 
what if we see that they are building that skill and the very first thing that we hope that they can do is simply clean up like like what what is good enough as we are growing them to their ability to handle this emotional skills these relational skills you know what's interesting I worked in a behavior office for a long time and if you just ask the kid at the end of that moment would you like to write a letter to your teacher? Sometimes the letter was just a picture of them and the teacher. Sometimes what they were communicating with zero words was, I just need to know, are we still okay? Yep. And so we're jumping to this big script and this shame and this, like we're feeding into that culture versus man, the end of this moment, what this kid really wants, like I can see it in my, I can see the picture that the kid drew in my mind's eye right now of just them by their teacher smiling. Like what they wanted when they had cleaned up the mess of the desk and the pencils and everything else, they wanted to know, are we still okay? Yep. And so our approach as adults is everything to that kid. Um, And we did, you know, I'm not going to sit here and, and like not be honest with you guys. Like Whenever we had peer-to-peer, we sometimes did have kids say, I'm sorry to the other kid. And then we taught the other kid, you can say, I accept your apology or I need some time. That was kind of our like on the receiving end. You could either say, I accept that or I need some time. We didn't require kids to say, I forgive you. We didn't require kids to say, I'll never do it again because that's setting them up to fail. So it's like, um, just thinking, I love that you said that, Tana, because it's really just thinking about what do you want? And what you yep. want is a restored relationship. And if that's truly what you want, you're going to approach it with kindness and compassion. And you're going to look at that kid in that moment. And 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 if not, you've got to be honest that actually my goal here is compliance. And if that's your goal, we at ETC think you're going to have an unhealthy relationship if that is your goal. Well, when I think about that example, I think when I think about it from a, like in the idea of scaffolding, it's okay if you are parenting a child and you know where you want to go. Yeah. Help them build those skills over time. Yeah. To take baby steps and realize you're building resilience for repair. Mm-hmm. You're showing them that we can have a a problem and that we don't have to be covered in shame. You're yeah. freeing them from that shame over time. I I am thinking about, you know, an older kiddo that I know that was not able at all to say, you know, any sort of responsibility in their young childhood and now in young adulthood can take responsibility. Yeah. But we we, we were patient with them and and we allowed repair to look like however they needed it to look to your point. Yeah, you was it taking it. and running and getting it? That's, that's what I was going to say. So, yeah. and, and then it's that peer to peer, like the modeling scaffolding, a lot of scaffolding is modeling. Yeah. Over right. time, right. apologizing, saying you're sorry, acknowledging your own stuff, being human together mm-hmm. as we scaffold vulnerability, like model vulnerability, we're scaffolding vulnerability. Yeah. As we, you know, model apologizing and taking responsibility, we're scaffolding that skill. As we model empathy, we're scaffolding empathy. Mm -hmm. But it takes time. But it works. Yeah. Well, and and I just think it's the same principle we've taken with, you know, with doing redos instead of uh, having a 
kind of punishment based yeah. um, discipline system. You can't see me using their quotes, but like um, it, the idea of doing those redos is building muscle memory of success and successful interactions in a particular thing. So I got mad and I threw the book. This time when I get mad, I'm going to say, Hey, I need a minute alone and I need to be by myself for a few minutes to cool off. Like, or, or whatever the shortest script is, you can give that. Or I'm mad. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And then, and to be able to, to say again, outside the moment, Hey, now that, now that this is kind of over, let's practice it the right way. Just so we know that we all kind of have this, have this down and we can do it. And so I think it is so, it is so helpful. And it does, um, you know, I think of our our friend Tina Payne Bryson and, and her book, No Drama Discipline, like it, that's what it is. It's no drop. Like you, when you're practicing outside the moment and you're both doing things from a regulated state, it feels like you're not really parenting because nobody's screaming <laughs> because. You're not true, JD. Oh, that's so true. And, and it, it yeah. I think the thing that has felt great on our end is that you start to realize like, man, our, we, we can, in those moments, both kids and us paint the other as an enemy monster and we begin making the worst assumptions of each other in those moments because we're just so mad or frustrated or whatever the emotion is is swelling up. And in reality, when we when we settle down out of that, yeah. we can kind of laugh at, at where those emotions tried to take us. And then we can address the actual thing that actually happened in a calm and, and peaceful way. And some of, some of you are hearing this and being like, these people are nuts. And I'm just saying... It works. Uh, it works. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Can I give one? Uh, I know we have to wrap up. Can I give one? Like, I will not rest if I don't say this on this podcast. Come on, yeah. bring it, bring it. Uh, okay. Some of you guys listening are the like, just do it yourself parents. And others of you are leaning a little bit towards the helicopter side. And so what you need to hear is they can do more themselves than you think they can. And so step back and give them a little time to try before you jump in and fix the problem, solve the issue, tie the shoe, tell them exactly what they should text back to their friend, like give them. So if you're hearing this and you know yourself and you know that you tend to maybe over support, Mm -hmm. remember that scaffolding is just the right amount of support. And so don't be scared. Make yourself, give yourself a five minute timer on your watch and don't let yourself say anything for five minutes and see how they process, listen, observe, and then decide how you're going to support. I just can't let that one slide because I've seen so many folks when they're trying to do the best that they can over doing things for kids and not letting the kid actually build that skill. You know, it would be like if you never, ever let the kid fall down when they're walking. Well, they're not going to learn how to walk or if you never took off the training wheels. So just, I can't, I know we got to wrap up. I know we're going long, but... I love that example. I remember when I I had this like massive epiphany. It's funny that I would use this example. It was a school example. And I remember when we took our youngest two to kindergarten, it was kindergarten orientation. And the teacher said, okay, moms and dads, you probably have been opening all of your children's packages for them all this time. But at lunchtime and snack time, we start asking the children to try to open it themselves before they ask for help. And I was, I mean, it was like this moment of like, oh, I felt like like the skies opened and like <laughs> the sun rose, rose. I was like, oh my goodness, that's it. Yeah. Just the simple moment of like taking a pause and saying, why don't you give that a try? Yeah. Oh, you need my help. I got you. Yeah. 
But what I hear you saying, Becca, is not to rush to just see him struggle a minute and jump in. But like, let let him struggle. Yeah. Two scaffolds for that skill. So as they get older, what we did this at, at our school, we had a pair of classroom scissors. And you could use this if you were old enough and you had scissors, you could use scissors to open. The other one that you can always use is ask a friend, ask a peer to help you because you might have a peer that's a little bit further along. And then the third one and last one was start to open it. Don't open it all the way. Still let them open it part of the way to them. I love it. So that's three scaffolds for that skill that we really use. So in closing, think about that little thing right there and see it as a theory that applies to like every single thing else in life. Like think about the opening the snack package, a little bit alone with some scissors, with a friend, like phone a friend, like, you know, use your your call-in lines as you're helping your children grow and develop. So I think I'm hearing us say there's no exact right way. Mm -hmm. Every child is different. Uh Every child's developmental needs are different. You have to attune to the needs of your child. You have to be curious and you're not going to do it perfect, right? Yeah. But we just want to understand that scaffolding is so incredibly valuable. We're already doing it, but then if we think about it and can use it intentionally Mm -hmm. as a way to build connection and attachment and help our children grow and develop, it's awesome. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. So true. Guys, thank you all so much. This is awesome. Well, I hope that episode was helpful for you today. Uh, again, I will say um, walking through these connecting practices, at least for me personally as a parent, uh, has been super helpful. Uh, not always encouraging because there are oftentimes uh, frustrations I have as a parent. And all of a sudden I'll walk into um, an episode recording and I walk out saying, okay, I've got some work to do myself. And so um, hopefully you found the episode today helpful, or at least um, it can give you some practical um, next steps in your parenting journey. Um, If you are not following Empowered to Connect on Instagram or on Facebook, we encourage you to do so. We've got a ton of great, exciting, big news coming up soon. So you need to be tuned in following um, at empowered to connect on Instagram, or you can search for us on Facebook, like us, follow our content there as well. Um, you can also find us at empoweredtoconnect.org, but make sure you're staying tuned to our social channels in the coming few weeks. That is all I will say, because we've got some big announcements, some exciting stuff coming forward, especially related to Cultivate Connection and all of the um, new curriculum that will be rolling out soon. So to stay tuned to all that, again, follow us on Instagram, follow us on Facebook, and, uh, of course, follow us here. Listen to our episodes as they, as they come out. For everybody and Empowered to Connect, uh, for Kyle Wright, who edits and engineers all of our audio, and Tad Jewett, who created the music behind the Empowered to Connect podcast, I'm J.D. Wilson, and we will see you next week on the ETC Podcast. Mm-hmm.